Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, and welcome to Gone Medieval from History Hit. I'm Eleanor Yanaga, and in today's episode, we'll be talking about Margaret of Anjou, when queens take the reins of power, and the idea of difficult women in the Middle Ages. Today, I'm absolutely over the moon to be joined by Dr. Joanna Lane-Smith. Joanna is a visiting research fellow at the University of Reading, where she works on queens, queenship, and royal adultery in medieval Britain. Her latest book, Later Plantagenets and the War of the Roses Consorts, Power, Influence, and Dynasty, co-edited with Elliot Woodacre, is out now with Palgrave Macmillan. Joanna, thank you so much for being here. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. So let me give you a very general question, which is going to be incredibly hard to sum up, which is, who was Margaret of Anjou? And why, I guess, do we consider her such an essential figure in medieval history? You know, when you want to talk about medieval queenship, she's one of the first names that kind of springs to mind, at least for me. I suppose because Margaret was one of the key players in the Wars of the Roses, which is that great dynastic bonfire at the end of the Middle Ages, because there are so many competing narratives about her, because there was the political propaganda from both sides, and also from the Tudors as they construct their identity, all shaping this idea. She was the wife of the last Lancastrian king, Henry VI. She was a French-born princess, daughter of the Duchess of Lorraine and the Count of Anjou, and her French connections mattered a lot in her identity as well, actually. She's the last foreign-born queen for half a century, which also colours how she's pictured. I think it's also actually important that she was one of Shakespeare's great tragic heroines, and that really coloured our picture of her. That's forgotten a lot because Shakespeare's Henry VI isn't studied terribly much at school and what have you, but it really coloured earlier generations of historians' perceptions For Shakespeare, she's England's Helen of Troy, literally, that's what she gets called. There's this wonderful scene where Joan of Arc has just cursed to the English that all hell's going to break loose on them. She leaves the stage and Margaret comes on and Margaret is going to be the way that the curse works out. And so there's this image we have of her, of the typical Eve, Pandora, causing chaos sort of woman, which has really shaped how she's been seen for generations as well. On top of that, she's the founder of Queen's College, Cambridge, and a patron of books, all sorts of interesting, more ordinary, normal queenship things that she did as well. Yeah, she's this really great mix of a kind of medieval femme fatale in a way, but also, you know, just the regular, ordinary, really interesting kind of bits of soft power that we would expect to see around the shop as well, which I think is so great about her. Can 
you touch very briefly on the political landscape that she comes into. I mean, it's very, very normal for kings of England to have French princesses, really, at the time. And suddenly things change so much that this becomes, you know, almost a mark against her, I would suppose, when we talk about her in a historiographical standpoint. Yes, because she's coming in at the very end of the Hundred Years' War. In a way, you can't understand the political landscape that Margaret steps into without looking right back at Edward III in the 14th century. He started the Hundred Years' War because he claimed to be King of France through his mother. Really, it was a way of getting a bit more control over the lands that he already had in France. It wasn't really a serious claim at that point. But then, of course, Henry V later on picks up and makes it into a serious claim. So you've got the background of the Hundred Years' War, which England is losing badly by the time Margaret arrives. So there's that element of it. But there's also the fact that Edward III had a lot of sons who have complicated descent. And that really shapes the landscape that Margaret's walking into. When Edward III died, he was followed by his grandson, Richard II. Turned out to be a bit of a tyrant and a disaster. He was overthrown, but not by the most obvious next in line, because the most obvious next in line was just a baby. Edward III's second son, Lionel Duke of Clarence, had only had a daughter and her descendants at that point were really young. They weren't in any position to get rid of Richard II. So it's the line after that, the Lancastrian line, John Duke of Lancaster's son, Henry, becomes Henry IV, the first Lancastrian king. And at the time, that's absolutely fine, but it becomes complicated later on when the child, who's Mortimer, grows up, especially because eventually his sister marries the descendant of another of Edward III's children into the house of York. And so then we have this really messy, complicated situation. And by the time Margaret marries Henry VI, there's an anxiety about who should follow Henry VI as king. Obviously, they're very much hoping she's going to produce lots of children and it'll all look very secure. Because at this point, Henry has one uncle, Humphrey Duke of Gloucester, who is a bit of a wild card and hasn't got any legitimate children. But all Henry's other uncles have died without children. It's very unclear who should inherit. There's a mess because John Duke of Lancaster had illegitimate children, the Beaufort family, who were then legitimised. And his daughter Elizabeth married rather scandalously into the Holland family. So you've got this real mess of who should actually inherit afterwards. And so they desperately want Margaret to bring security, produce some children, and then we'll know should it be the Duke of York? It doesn't need to be the Duke of York. It doesn't need to be the Hollands. It doesn't need to be the Beauforts. It doesn't need to be any of these people and his children can inherit. Yeah, and I suppose that really getting in a French princess too, that's kind of a way of showing, you know, this is the real line. This is who we're going for. We have the kind of bona fide connections between other thrones. Please believe me, I'm the real king. This is where the heirs are going to come from kind of thing, right? Yeah, she's really important as an emblem of this is what the foreign princes accept as a Lancastrian still. But to be fair, at that point, there isn't any question about Henry himself as the legitimate king. No one's questioning it yet. The French connection is complicated because initially when Henry's looking for a wife, his ministers are thinking, we need an alliance against France. We need to get more of this territory back. But Charles VII of France is so powerful, he needs to prevent that from happening. It kind of forces their hand, really. They have to go for a French bride. And Charles won't offer one of his own daughters, who are admittedly a bit young anyway. Margaret's merely his niece. It doesn't feel quite as prestigious as it might do. And although I said her parents both had titles, her father had loads of titles, but he was really not very good at holding on to any of his estates. He spent his, most of his career 
fighting for his lands or in prison, in fact. She comes with a really tiny diary. And as part of the arrangements, there actually turns out that the English have to agree to surrender some of their lands, the complete opposite of what people were originally hoping. So that really brings her in at a disadvantage, to be honest, as a queen. So when she's brought in within this, what kind of role does she play, especially socially, I guess, during the early years of her marriage? She's on the back foot politically, as you say. She hasn't quite brought in the land, even if she has brought in a little bit of prestige, a little bit of that French charm that people do like to see. But, you know, she kind of enters a situation where her husband's having a really tough time, isn't he? Yes, he is. Economically, it's a really bad time, actually. There's been bad harvests and finances are difficult anyway. Her husband is also much too lavish. He likes to give things away and there's not enough money in the coffers to be as kingly as he should. So now people are telling him either you have to claim back some of the lands or you have to slim down how many you've got in your household. Margaret initially is very much your traditional queen. She does the things she should. She negotiates marriages. She supports people who come to her as an intercessor. She's an intermediary in business in lots of ways. She also does a lot of rebuilding in some of the palaces, makes them look more beautiful. Obviously, the downside of that is the cost. But she tries to make his image better, I think. So kind of like the soft power that we would expect. Exactly, yes. You see her writing letters to duchesses whose husbands are receiving letters from the king saying, make sure your husband does what the king wants him. (laughs) I love that. Just kind of the, you know, appending there. But it's a really tricky one too, isn't it? Because Henry VI, he's in kind of a position that politically it's fairly strong, but his health is a bit on the blink. They say that he suffers from madness is kind of the term that we see. And Margaret, comes into an incredibly prestigious role, but one where her ability to kind of play those political games is kind of of the utmost importance. Yes, exactly what is wrong with Henry and how people are aware of it and when it becomes aware is one of those big debates because he only collapses into this catatonic stupor in 1453. And then there's this sort of period of time where he doesn't really seem to be ruling as he should But we don't know whether that's because he generally had some problem or whether he was just not interested in the business of rule. He wanted to build King's College and do his religious patronage and do those kinds of things that he liked doing and just wasn't terribly focused on politics. So we don't know whether it was an illness or whether it was merely temperament up until 1453, which is the big year when everything changes, really. So understanding this complex sort of situation, what would you say about Margaret's queenship? How would it differ to other queens at her level at the time? For the first decade, no, not really. She's just doing what queens normally do, apart from the fact that it takes her a very long time to have her first child. Not completely unusual either, but given the real tensions that I mentioned, this is a big issue that concerns people and there's gossip and concern about it quite early on. But then when she's finally pregnant, shortly afterwards, that's the moment when suddenly we lose the Hundred Years' War, then the last of the French territories are suddenly lost. And this is probably what causes Henry to fall into his catatonic stupor. And suddenly no one's quite sure what to do. The Queen has the baby just about three months later. And that's really important because suddenly she's got a son, which makes her more secure. It also means that we've got this answer. What happens if Henry just dies of his malady or whatever? We'll all focus on the sun. So there is that element of security. And initially, the lords are trying to hold it together in a council, but something more has to happen as the months pass and he doesn't get his health back. And it seems that 
she or perhaps the chancellor comes up with the idea that she should be regent. But not everybody is happy with this, far from it, because that's not really the way things have been done in England. Although that's exactly what happened in France when there was a king, Charles VI, who had several bouts. He thought he was made of glass and various things like that. And his wife would be regent. But people are certainly not keen on that idea in England. And eventually it's actually Richard, Duke of York, the cousin with a really potential claim actually to have a superior royal line to Henry's own, who's the one who gets to be Lord Protector, which is really complicated because from then on, there's always this issue. Everybody knows he is also descended from this oldest heir. He's charismatic and has his wife who has loads of children. He has loads of children. It's always a little bit of a threat from there on in. So she rises up at some point in the 1450s to be a figurehead or perhaps more actively against the Duke of York. And so in this, she ends up taking political sides And I suppose that's a particularly crucial thing because queens aren't supposed to do that. They should very much be the mediator, the balance, and not take sides in that way. So that's one way in which perhaps not through anything that she could help, but she ends up being in that very different position. And as situation unravels and actually Henry loses his throne, she is the one who's doing the rallying all across Europe, trying to get people to support. She becomes something of a military leader in some people's eyes, the way she's pictured. She's the one who, first of all, even before he's lost his throne, she gets military reinforcements from Scotland and brings them down the country. And these are not normal roles. They do happen, but certainly not normal roles for English queens. Mm. It's a pretty incredible level of involvement in a specifically kind of military operation. It's not completely out of the question to see a woman doing something like this. But it is a bit odd seeing it happen, I would say, within the context of a kind of dynastic struggle among cousins, as it were. I mean, it's so thorny to unravel, right? Because she's really at the eye of the hurricane, as it were. Yes, usually there would be some man, actually, who was closely related to the king who could be taking that role to an extent as well. But because of the level of controversy, I suppose, around the Beauforts, who were the king's kin, but through this illegitimate line, and there was tension about that. And they're very much the conflict that was going on was between York and Somerset. So that wasn't a sort of a neutral person who could stand in. Of course, the king had half-brothers. He had the Tudors, but there were complications with them too, really, in terms of resentment that they were the children of a squire. And they just couldn't muster the kind of authority that was needed. So the queen's the only person who's in that position who can step in in that way. I think it's something that we really like now. You know, historians now, when we talk about Margaret of Anjou, one of the things we really love is this kind of involvement that she has. We oftentimes look to see ourselves in the past. And, you know, we want to see the strong woman who's able to kind of step in. But is that how she's perceived by her contemporaries at the time? It very much depends on their political loyalties, to be honest. And unfortunately, the Yorkists have left a lot more information than the Lancastrians. So that doesn't help either. There's also foreign sources. Georges Chatelain, who was working in France at the time, wrote this wonderful lament dedicated to Margaret about how she'd been really hard done by. And it's a very kind of tragic story. But on the other hand, as you say, this crossing boundaries thing, which feels very modern, That actually also isn't as condemned as you might expect. Quite a few, particularly early Tudor historians, say she was manly and courageous in a positive way. But then they usually undercut it. Yes, but she didn't know how to mediate and be soft as a woman should do. 
and she should have done, and then things would have been okay with Richard Duke of York. It's a double-edged thing, really. They think, yes, it's good, because after all, men are superior to women. If a woman wants to be like a man, that's a good thing. But then on the other hand, there's always that, yes, but she never gets it right. She can't be like a man because of her essential nature. That seems to be the thread that's going through these. We still suffer from that, you know, kind of wanting women to be powerful, but also very feminine. You know, there's always this kind of desire to say, well, if a woman is going to be powerful, she still has to kind of, you know, give us these little hints that she's still quite feminine. And we're still doing exactly the same thing, I think, as these Tudor historians, even if we don't know it and don't necessarily have such a dog in the fight, I suppose. But when we think about Margaret and we think about her involvement in the Wars of the Roses, Things really kind of start hotting up militarily, right? Because there's just this mess. Here's Richard Duke of York. Here are all these familial problems. Here is a kind of catatonic to disinterested king. And then we have the Battle of St. Albans. And what does this mean when we start to have a real military outbreak for Margaret? That's a massive game changer, really, because this is Richard Duke of York massively overstepping what's appropriate for a nobleman. Up until that point, he had been saying, the Duke of Somerset is a bad influence on the king. It's the Duke of Somerset's fault that we've lost Normandy. He'd already geared up to this with a showdown at Dartford where he brought some forces with him, but nothing had happened. And that was even before Henry had his collapse. Then, of course, there's Henry's collapse. Richard becomes protector. But then Henry recovers. Richard has to step down. And Somerset is pulled back out of prison, which is where the Duke of York had put him. And gets back, and it's exactly the status quo it was before, really. And that's when Richard Duke of York kind of flips and decides he's just going to wipe Somerset out. And they have the Battle of St Albans. The main purpose, as far as York's concerned, is to get rid of Somerset. As far as York's allies are concerned, they decide to get rid of a few of their other opponents whilst they're at it, because they're involved in a few land battles. But once they've got rid of the lords they really want to get rid of, it's over. So it's a kind of overworked lynching, really, but it's a battle. It's completely inappropriate. And this is the point, I'm sure, when Margaret is confident that the Duke of York is a threat to the stability of the kingdom, to her husband's position and to her son's future. So thereafter, she's justified in seeing York as a threat. And we begin to get this division. People are taking sides more obviously, more clearly. The immediate aftermath of St Albans is that York, in fact, takes control of Henry VI, takes him down to London initially, but then he leaves him at Hartford, makes him a bit of a puppet king and sets himself up as protector all over again. And Margaret then collects him from Hartford and brings him to London and York's protectorate collapses. Possibly Margaret influences it, who knows. But from then on, she's trying to build an image of her and the king and the prince as the authority figure And York is undermining that, and those who are close to York are undermining that. It's still not inevitable that it's all going to break out into violence again, but from there on in, it's always on tender hooks, and small things push things into violence. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. 
Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So when we really realize that we are committed, I suppose, to the violent road, there's no coming back. What would you say is kind of like the Rubicon for the War of the Roses here? The Rubicon actually is not until 1459, because after St. Albans, they try and rebuild a certain amount of relationship. And this leads into a peace procession called the Love Day procession that happens in 1458, And I know a lot of historians are quite dismissive of this. Oh, this was just Henry VI fantasizing that he can make peace between the people involved at St. Albans. But at the same time as that happening, Margaret of Anjou's closest friend, Alice Chaucer, Duchess of Suffolk, arranges for her son, her heir, to marry Richard, Duke of York's daughter. And that's quite a big commitment. And it seems to me that these major players are still hoping at that point that it will be peaceful. But... I tend to blame the Earl of Warwick for what happened next. He was the most ambitious figure. He was involved in piracy in the Channel, which was really undermining the foreign policy and took everything personally when people tried to rein him in. Whatever the reason is, it really breaks down towards the end of 1459. And that's the point when Richard, Duke of York and the Earl of Warwick and also the Earl of Salisbury, who's Warwick's father, Richard, Duke of York's brother-in-law, so all closely related, when they bring an army again towards the king's forces. I think they're not expecting the king to be leading the forces, actually, but he is. And when some of the Earl of Warwick's men realise this, they balk at actually fighting the king rather than the men they've been told are misleading the king and switch sides. So this is all outside Ludlow, which is where Richard Duke of York's great castle is. And realising this has happened in the night that not only have some of the army fled, but they've also taken their plans with them. Richard Duke of York and the Earl of Warwick and the Earl of Salisbury and Richard Duke of York's sons all flee the country. And shortly after that, they are tainted in Parliament. So that means that they are denied the right to life, the right to possess their lands, the right for anyone to inherit. Again, this is a thing, oh, Margaret arranged for this to happen. Whoever was in charge would have arranged for this to happen. But at this point, they have to choose between a life in the political wilderness, in exile in France forever, or coming back and actually completely pushing the king out. So I think that's the point at which there was no going back. So you've got Margaret, you've got her 
possibly anathematizing people. But does this kind of result in any kind of rumors or specific controversies around Margaret from the kind of Yorkist camp? There have been rumors around Margaret for almost as soon as she has her first son. Even before that, there was gossip that the Duke of Suffolk, who'd of course arranged the marriage and was the most powerful figure at court at the time, was preventing her and the king sleeping together. And that's why they didn't have children. And that's probably the kernel of what later turns up in Hall and Shakespeare, suggesting that the Duke of Suffolk was sleeping with Margaret. And almost as soon as Margaret does have a son, there's gossip that actually the child isn't really her son. It's a changeling. You get the same thing with James II's unpopular wife. That's quite early on. And then once the Wars of the Roses really broken out proper, as it were, the Yorkists themselves are clearly using these stories about her son, Edward, to suggest that either the son is not her son or he's not the king's son. That She committed adultery in order to have a child because, of course, Henry is... So weak and pathetic, he can't father a child, that sort of thing. Also, there was rumours that she was sleeping with the Duke of Somerset, because by this time, Suffolk's long dead, but the Duke of Somerset is the major player. And it's a way of attacking Somerset by suggesting he's usurping the king's place in bed. But it's also a way of undermining Margaret, because a woman's virtue is without that, she has no authority. She can't be trusted in any way. And really also there then becomes to be an issue when her son dies. Yes, because it's like, how do you hold on to this power when you're already being portrayed as some kind of harlot? We see this over and over again. You know, I think presented with any kind of quite powerful queen, you immediately get infidelity charges, you know, whether it's Eleanor of Aquitaine or Isabel the She-Wolf or, you know, whoever. You have these things kind of thrown and bandied about. But, you know, having the heir apparent there that one can point to does sort of make a difference. Yeah. Once her son's dead at the Battle of Tewkesbury, that's it. Game over. She's no longer a political player. And imagine all this like work and trying to kind of get everything right behind the scenes. She's this pretty consummately respectable and intelligent woman. And that that's it. That's it. There's nothing you can do as queen because the only thing that really justifies you existing is children and more specifically sons. So it's like this just sweeps away everything. It depends on the context, actually. Richard II's Queen Anne of Bohemia is actually quite a successful queen, despite never actually having a child. She does all the intermediary stuff, the peacemaking, and she's respected and her patronage. And it's only after she dies that things really go downhill with Richard II. It's not completely a failure if you can't have children, but it is really, makes you very vulnerable. So, okay, here's poor Margaret. She's lost her son. And what does this mean for her in her later years? After Ludford and the Lord's escape, they come back, Battle of Northampton, take control of Henry again. And that's the kind of rundown towards Henry being forced to declare his own son no longer his heir and let Richard Duke of York be his heir. That's when Margaret's in Scotland trying to get reinforcements. And the Duke of York leads up an army before she's even come out of Scotland. Lords loyal to Henry have come out and killed York at the Battle of Wakefield. So it's looking good. And she comes down to London with her forces. There's a lot of propaganda about how her forces were raiding the country and pillaging, but it was winter and they needed food. So it's really difficult to know how much that's just an exaggeration. But anyway, they are successful again in the Second Battle of St. Albans. But 
the people of London won't let her come into the city. So Henry was in London. He's now with her at St. Albans because of her victory at St. Albans. So Henry and the Queen are outside and the people of London won't let them in because they're afraid of what the army are going to do. And there's a um, real demonstration of the people of London's sense of who's in control here because the embassy they send out is led by three women who know Margaret. Two of them have been part of her household and another one, she had been married to Henry's uncle. And they have this parleying that the women are really central to. And they agree that London will send food out to Margaret's army. But then the ordinary Londoners say, no, we're not sending out the food. They turn over the carts and they won't let them. So Margaret desperately needs to feed her troops. And Richard Duke of York's son, Edward, who's been in the marches in Wales, is heading over with an army. And she's got no way of feeding her troops and she ends up back up north. And it's sort of the following on from that, that eventually Richard Duke of York's son, Edward, gets himself declared Edward IV, comes up north and they have the Battle of Towton. That is the great deciding battle. And then Henry and Margaret have to flee to Scotland because Edward's forces were victorious. And so Edward is king for 10 years. But all through that, Margaret has been trying to get her husband back on the throne. Initially, she's trying to rally forces in France to invade on Henry's behalf. And there's quite a few raids through the first four years of Edward's reign. He is insecure because of repeated Lancastrian invasions and various castles keep changing hands and what have you. But eventually he manages to capture Henry and put him in the tower. So he thinks he's secure. But that's only four years after that. So in 1469, the Earl of Warwick betrays him and goes into rebellion. And the outflowing of that is eventually the Earl of Warwick ends up himself exiled in France. And the French king, Louis XI, is delighted with the chance to make mischief and persuades the Earl of Warwick and Margaret to make common cause. She has him kneeling for 15 minutes in front of her before she will allow him to stand up and say, we'll make common cause. But he promises he's going to put Henry the back on the throne and he's going to lead an army into England and put Henry VI back on the throne in return for her letting her son marry his daughter. She won't let the wedding happen until he's actually done that. So she stays in France with her son and Warwick's daughter, Anne. Warwick does as he promised, he gets back to England and Edward IV is completely wrong-footed, not ready at all, and he flees. Warwick walks in, puts Henry back on the throne, tries to rally other Lancastrians. The trouble is a lot of the old Lancastrians are still deeply suspicious of Warwick because he was so much their enemy for so long. But when news comes that Henry's back on the throne, Margaret allows the wedding to happen, but she's still quite anxious about coming over, delays and delays, by which time Edward has managed to get support in Burgundy and he has reinvaded back in the north of England. So by the time Margaret finally comes across the channel, lands at Weymouth, it's to learn that very day the Earl of Warwick has been killed at the Battle of Barnet with various Lancastrian forces and that Henry has been put back in the tower. And Tewkesbury is what follows that. She's there at Weymouth and she has to decide, do I go back to the safety of France or do I trust that there were certain Lancastrians who would never have allied with Warwick but will ally with the Queen? The Duke of Somerset, the Earl of Devon are saying, no, we can do this. Jasper Tudor's up in Wales with forces who are going to come and join her as well. So what she tries to do is join up the forces that these various Lancastrians have rallied but she doesn't manage to get them all together before Edward meets her at Tewkesbury. 
there seems to be perhaps infighting among the Lancastrian ranks that sort of erstwhile Yorkists in with her and so forth uh, possibly undermines it as well. But yes, it's a disaster at Tewksbury and that's where her son dies. Of course, she's not on the battlefield. She discreetly stays in a nunnery nearby while that's happening. But nevertheless, she's taken prisoner now afterwards. Yeah, she's quickly afterwards found, taken prisoner, almost a bit like a trophy in the triumphal procession to London, deeply humiliating. And the next day it's announced that Henry has died of pure melancholy in the Tower of London, which of course it probably wasn't at all. Everyone suspects that it was really murder. What becomes of Margaret? She's eventually ransomed back to France, no? She is, yes. So she spends several years in England. Edward gives her a pension, not a reasonable amount. I think it's £3, six shillings a week or something, which adds up over the year. It's really tricky to know exactly where she is because there's mentions of her in different places. She certainly seems to spend some of her time with her old friend, Alice Chaucer, Duchess of Suffolk in Oxfordshire. But she also has some connections, in fact, with the Queen's household. And she's certainly in London at certain times. She even joins, actually, the London Skinners Guild, which is a religious guild, and they say prayers for their members. And their most illustrious members get a painting. And so there's a little painting of Margaret in her widow's weeds with her most loyal servant kneeling behind her, celebrating her having joined, and at the same time as some of the Queen's household. She's not incarcerated. She's actually got a certain amount of freedom and respectability, but it's a bit sad. But then Edward leads his great attempt to restart the Hundred Years' War and fight France. That fizzles out really quickly and he makes a big deal with the French king. And as part of that, he agrees to ransom Margaret back. So on the one hand, he's getting rid of this financial problem of his. And on the other hand, the French king can then make her sign over all her, not very great many, but her French possessions to him. So it's the men are just tidying things up and she ends up living in relative poverty in one of her father's castles. You know, it's one of these things where, you know, really you see her kind of not to the same extent as her husband, but subjected to sort of the same thing. There's these powerful people who are going to come in and move you about. It always makes me think a little bit of actual chess pieces. You know, and the way they're just kind of like moved about the board and to be treated like you're just a kind of financial problem to be dealt with at the end. You know, when she was so involved in court and she was so involved in kind of trying to make industry happen for the country and establishing colleges, all these like really important social things than just oh, go home to your father's castle. We're done here. You know, it's a bit anticlimactic, isn't it? It's rather melancholy, I would say. <laughs> Absolutely. Very sad, which I think is partly why she's been picked up by so many authors as a literary figure that embodies the wheel of fortune, the unpredictableness of life. She's such a case for that. So just thinking about that then, when we think of other quite powerful queens, I suppose, and I've already mentioned her in comparison, when you see Eleanor of Aquitaine written about, she's really disliked, you know, (laughs) at the time, like throughout her queenship. And afterwards, you know, for quite some time, there's a lot of, you know, scandal written about her. Everyone keeps talking very seriously about how she was definitely shagging her uncle or Saladin or someone like this. But Margaret, it does seem that people feel a bit more softly towards her, even though she is a similarly like quite powerful woman. And do you think that this is probably kind of connected to her end? I think her end does have a big impact on it. Yes. So at the time of when she's getting Henry VI back on the throne, that kind of period, there's some really nasty stuff being written about her and how her French men are going to destroy the very English 
people and English tongue and all this kind of thing. But that's very much Edward the Fourth's propaganda he needs at that moment. And as soon as she's not a threat and they're not needing to do that, I suppose the thing with Eleanor is she is actually a great success because she ensures Richard the Lionheart is king. She then ensures John is king. Her line succeeds and goes on. Whereas, of course, Margaret is a failure in that respect. Her son doesn't succeed. But for the Tudor regime, they've got this complicated balancing act they're playing in terms of, yes, the Lancastrians were good, but the whole Wars of the Roses was a mess that we've saved you from. So in doing that, yes, they're happy to paint her as a more tragic figure. Mm. So what do you think that Margaret's life and her experience and wielding of queenship can teach us about the role of women in medieval politics? It's important, I think, to think about Margaret in relationship with all the other women that she worked with as well, actually, because I mentioned the duchesses that she was writing to and saying, make sure your duke does what you should. There's a great letter that Richard, Duke of York's wife, Cecily, writes to Margaret. In fact, this is the first evidence, really, of Margaret getting involved in national politics is this letter from Cecily saying, could you persuade the king to let Richard, Duke of York come back on the World Council? So we've got all these little hints and touches of the fact that there are lots of powerful, capable, able women, most of them standing behind their husbands, so you barely see them. But because of Margaret having a much weaker husband, getting to overshadow him, it's more obvious. But she's a gateway into seeing a lot of other powerful women too. And I think one of the key things is that although we have all this literature in the Middle Ages about how women are supposed to behave, silence and staying where you're meant to be and confined and indoors and not military and all that kind of thing. The reality is different. And that's true at all levels of society. So Margaret shows us that just as at any period in history, really, women don't necessarily fall into the stereotypes. And it's all about personality. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you very, very much to Joanna for joining me. This has been Gone Medieval by History Hit. And if you've liked what you've heard, don't forget to rate, review, and follow the podcast. And please tell your friends about it. And if you fancy suggesting an episode, you can drop us an email at gonemedieval at historyhit.com. Otherwise, I'll be back again next Tuesday for another episode. And my co-host, Matt Lewis, will be back on Friday. Until next time. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Thank you for listening to this episode of Gone Medieval. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us out and you'll be doing me a big favour. 
Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com forward slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use the code MEDIEVAL at checkout.